Hey everybody, Aaron Bishop here. Just wanted to let you know, I have written a book. It has been published and it is available now on Amazon.com. Name of the book is The Power of Passover, A Christian's Guide to the Festival of Redemption. If you want to know what Passover is about, just a really deep dive into the festival, into its history, and into why we're where we're at today. And even an instruction guide on how to hold your own Passover. It's got everything in it. So if you'd like to check that out, go to Amazon.com and search for The Power of Passover. And now we return you to your regularly scheduled program. I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we teach repentance and forgiveness. I'm Aaron Bishop here with my beautiful wife, Rebecca. Hey guys. And today we are going to finish the book of Job. It has been quite a ride. This book is just very repetitive, but it is so packed full of some really deep and hard to struggle through ideas. Mm, it's definitely been a nice journey to look through all of the different aspects of grieving mm. to to learn more about how to deal with people who are grieving yeah. and and be more humane with them be more gentle with them right yeah there's also the great theological things about trying to box god in and you can't put him in a box and you, all your theology may not match your reality and when that happens you can't say well my theology is right and therefore reality must be wrong or yeah, absolutely. Or God must be wrong, or this person who's suffering must be wrong, because my theology says they have to be wrong. Yeah, and we have to have compassion when we see someone suffering, even if we think they are wrong. Right. And then one of the things that we often don't consider is that that compassion and understanding is a two-way street. Uh, and we're going to see that in this week's passage, that there's there's some forgiveness and there's some forgiveness that Job has to engage in towards his friends. He has to be willing to pray for them. He has to be willing to forgive them for hurting him while he was hurt, for attacking him while he was down, for slandering his name and calling him all these terrible things while he was in the midst of the worst time of his life. He has to forgive. And that is just so immensely profound. So and, we're going to really dig into that. And he has to forgive in the midst of it because right. he doesn't get healed until after. Right. These chapters, they also contain some of the, I guess, more clickbaitish parts of, of scripture. Or at, definitely of Job. Uh, yeah, because yeah, uh, this, is, this is an area that I turned to somewhat regularly when I was growing up. Because I just was fascinated by these descriptions of the behemoth and the Leviathan. For those of you who don't know, those are actually Hebrew words. Mm -hmm. uh, the behemoth is Bahamot and Leviathan is Leviathan. When you hear those words being spoken and even in things like Final Fantasy games, they're using Hebrew words for, <laughs> for those creatures. These are the Hebrew names for these creatures. Which is, I find, just absolutely fascinating. And the descriptions of these creatures is a lesson in extremes. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, it's a lesson in extremes. And uh, 
And it would be really easy to camp on this this greater portion of these chapters, but that's not what we are going to do today. So let's go ahead and read these chapters, and then let's come back and let's really dig into some very important topics to wrap up this whole episode with Job and his friends and everything that's gone on between them. Job chapters 40 through 42. Then Adonai answered Job, saying, Will the one who contends with Shaddai correct him? Let him who accuses God answer. Then Job answered Adonai. He said, Indeed, I am unworthy. What can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then Adonai answered Job from the whirlwind. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will inform me. Would you really annul my judgment? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Then adorn yourself in majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself in splendor and honor. Scatter the fury of your anger. Look at every proud person and bring him low. Look at everyone who is proud and humble him. Tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them together in the dust. Bind their faces in the hidden place. Then I, even I, will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Look now at Behemoth, which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. Now look at his strength in his loins, and his power in the muscles of his belly. He stiffens his tail like a cedar, the sinew of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like rods of iron. He is first among the ways of God. Let his maker draw near with his sword. For the mountains bring him food, and all the wild animals play there. Under the locust plant he lies down, in the secrecy of the reeds and marsh. The lotuses conceal him in their shade, the willows of the brook surround him. If the river rages, he is not alarmed. He is secure, even though the Jordan surges against his mouth. Can anyone capture it by its eyes, or pierce his nose with hooks? Can you pull the leviathan with a hook, or tie down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a reed rope in his nose, or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you, or speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you, so you can take him as a slave forever? Can you play with him like a bird, or put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders barter for him? Will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his hide with harpoons, or his head with fishing spears? If you lay your hands on him, you will remember the battle and never do it again. See, his hope is wrong. He is laid low, even the sight of him. Is he not fierce when he is roused? Who then is able to stand before me? Who has confronted me that I should repay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I will not keep silent about his limbs, or his might, or the grace of his arraignment. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who can penetrate his double armor? Who can open the doors of his face ringed with fearsome teeth? His rows of shields are his pride, shut up closely as with tight seal. So close to the next that no air can pass between. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. He sneezes out flashes of light. His eyes are like the eyelids of dawn. Out of his mouth go flames, sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from his nostrils, as a boiling pot over burning reeds. His breath sets coals ablaze, and flames dart from his mouth. Strength resides in his neck. Dismay runs before him. The folds of his flesh are tightly joined. They are firm on him, immovable. His heart is hard as rock hard as a lower millstone. When he rises up, the mighty are afraid. At his crashing, they retreat. A sword that reaches him has no effect, nor with a spear, dart, or javelin. He regards iron as straw, bronze as rotten wood. Arrows do not make him flee. Sling stones become like chaff to him. 
A club is regarded as stubble. He laughs at the rattling of a lance. His undersides are jagged part shards, leaving a trail like a threshing sledge in mud. He makes the deep boil like a cauldron and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. He leaves a shining wake behind him. One would think the deep had white hair. Nothing on dry land is his equal, a creature without fear. He sees every haughty thing. He is king over all who are proud. Job answered Adonai and said, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this who darkens counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke without understanding, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. You said, hear now and I will speak. I will question you and you will inform me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye has seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent on dust and ashes. After Adonai had spoken these words to Job, Adonai said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger is kindled against you and against your two friends, because you have not spoken about me what is right like my servant Job has. So now take for yourselves seven young bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept Job's prayer and not deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken correctly about me like my servant Job. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite went and did what Adonai told them, and Adonai accepted Job's prayer. So Adonai restored what Job had lost. After he prayed for his friends, and Adonai doubled everything that Job had before, then all his brothers, all his sisters, and everyone who had known him before came to him and ate bread with him in his house. They consoled him and comforted him for all the calamity that Adonai had brought on him. Each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. So Adonai blessed Job's latter days more than at his beginning. He had fourteen thousand sheep, six thousand camels, a thousand yoke of oxen, a thousand female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He called the name of the first Jemima, the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Keren Hapuk. Nowhere in the land were there found women as beautiful as the daughters of Job. Their father gave them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived a hundred forty years. He saw his children and their children for four generations. So Job died old and full of days. And thus ends the book of Job. That is, unless you read the Septuagint. Hmm. Um, if you read the Septuagint, the book goes on for one more verse, which is extremely long because <laughs> it didn't get verse numbered with the rest of this when uh -huh. the verse numberings were being handed out in the text. Remember back in the beginning when we were trying to figure out who Job is? Right. One of those options was Job was an Edomite who lived in the east and was the king of such and such place. And these other his friends were also kings and so on and so forth. That all comes from the Septuagint. And that is found at the end of chapter 42 uh, oh, in wow. the Septuagint. But you will not find it in your Hebrew Bible. You will not find it in Hebrew manuscripts. The only place you will find that is in the Greek Septuagint, the translation that was made 150 years before Yeshua in Alexandria, Egypt. Interesting. So just a little tidbit. If you're looking for the evidence of where we got that information, uh, that's where. Septuagint, end of chapter 42. Go look it up for yourself. If you read Greek, if not, then look up the English translation of the Septuagint and you'll find it there. Uh, it's, it's just a little bit of recap trying to shore up some of these loose ends. There's really nothing more to be gained from that. Another interesting factor that we recognized while we were reading this is that my translation, the TLV, Tree yes. of Life, has a different numbering system than Aaron's version. Right. So mine's based off of the English translation numbering, uh, something we've encountered before. Rebecca's is based off of the Hebrew numberings. Um, so when the, the numberings were being given out for the Old Testament, uh, different scholars did it different ways. For the most part, they match up just right. 
every once in a while, the numbers of the verses don't match up. Places like Leviticus 6 is one area. Book of Joel is another area. Right here is one area that happens all throughout. There are just these random places where the numberings don't line up. You can actually find online a listing of all of these. I have a, I have a listing of those, of these differences um, that fits on a single PDF page. It's just two columns and it, it goes through and just kind of shows uh, most of the time it's in places like the Psalms or the vast majority of them. And it's usually like one or two verses. It's usually it's one or two verses. as many as here. The three that I named in Leviticus, it's six verses. In Joel, there's actually four chapters instead of three. And here, yeah, they changed numbering occurs for chapter 41 uh, by about six to eight verses. I don't yeah. remember exactly. So yeah, the just be aware, depending on your translation, your chapters and verses might be different than what we're using today. So... All right. With that, last week we left off. God was kind of putting Job in his place. Yeah. Were you there? Do you know how any of this works? Who are you to really to come to me and to question me on what I do in this world? And here at the beginning of chapter 40, Job gets kind of a dressing down from God. He absolutely does. And he takes it very, very well. Basically, his answer is, I am unworthy, I am ashamed of myself, and I will not do it again. So when I was in the army, we were always taught that uh, there's no excuse for failure. So when you fail, don't try to make excuses. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually put that into practice one time. In basic training, I think my boots didn't get shined the night before. Hmm. Um, and so they were, they were looking kind of dingy. I thought, you know, they're good enough. They'll be fine. They weren't fine. The drill sergeant saw him. Your shoes look like mud. Blah, 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 blah. He really tore me up one side and down the other. What excuse do you have to make for yourself, private? No excuse, drill sergeant. Didn't even try to defend myself, even though I had a bunch of defenses ready. And he actually gave us one of the most fun punishments I have ever had. <laughs> what was that? Uh, it was raining out like really seriously raining and he made us go over into the grass in front of the barracks and run back and forth and do push-ups on one end and then run and go do push-ups on the other end okay well it was raining so hard i ran about two-thirds of the way and then slid the rest of the way on the grass <laughs> did my push-ups jumped up and ran the rest of the way and slid two-thirds of the way back and forth <laughs> I was having so much fun over there doing my push-ups while everybody else stood in line and waited and were waiting for <laughs> <That's> <laughs> various things to occur in the, the morning formation. I was back there just having the time of my life. So if you get in trouble in some situations, don't offer any excuse. Just say, yes, sir, you are correct. You are you are my authority. And I acknowledge that. And Job does that right here. He, mm -hmm. he acknowledges, you're my authority. And you're right. And I think that the place where Job fails, because we know Job didn't do anything to deserve the punishment. Correct. It seems like the place where Job failed and where God's calling him out is in his God come and accuse me to my face of what I've done wrong. Yes, I, I agree. Answer I me and like, I will defend myself. Yeah, I feel like he had a bit of arrogance. Uh, well, right, because his theology said God punishes the unrighteous, and he's looking at his life and seeing punishment, and he's like, what did I do that's unrighteous? Tell me, and I'll repent. I'll I'll repent if you show me what I've done that's unrighteous. And that's not necessarily wrong. But no. then it was like, God of all the universe, you better come here and tell me, calling God to the table. And it's right. like, you come have accuse me no to my face. right to do that. But it's yeah. this idea of come accuse me to my face. If you, if you got a problem with me, come accuse me to my face and I'll defend myself to you. And right. so God comes and basically says, who are you, you little worm? And he says, you know what? You're right. I apologize. I'm sorry. I repent. And yeah. Job repents. The only thing he did wrong was in his response to what had happened to him. Mm -hmm. Unlike what his friends were saying, his friends were saying he had done something wrong that precipitated what had happened to him. Right. And there's a big difference there. And God calls Job out for his arrogance, for his... Uh, pride. Yeah. Well, the for, reason I'm using the word proud is because it does of appear the whole in your, Leviathan. 
Well, it does appear in here a couple of times. In fact, before even Behemoth, he says, look on everyone who's proud and humble him and tread down the wrongdoers in their place. He's telling Job, basically, go ahead. If you can do all of this, if you can go out in the world and correct everyone who's proud and everyone who's arrogant and everyone who's a wrongdoer, then by all means, you'd be able to save yourself. I'll believe it that you can save yourself at that point. Until then, you need me. Hmm. Yeah, then even I will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Right. He's challenging Job. Go on, go go on out. Go correct the proud. And then what's really fascinating is then at the end of the description of Leviathan, he says he is king of the proud. Mm -hmm. So he's saying, basically, if you're going to go out and correct the proud, you're going to have to tame Leviathan. You're going to have to go out and correct Leviathan, this proudest mm. of chaos creatures. And <laughs> good luck with that, Job. Right. And Job recognizes that he's out of his league, out of his depth. But those two areas that occur in chapters 40 and 41, those ones that every junior high kid just loves to turn to and pour over. At least every <laughs> junior high boy wants <laughs> to turn to and pour over. I, I enjoyed it too. I, it is fascinating to read God's description of a dragon. Right. Right. And, and that's in essence what Leviathan is. And the behemoth, I always uh, considered it something like a brontosaurus. Or a, yeah. Or yeah. A, that's kind of what it Which is what they were called when we were kids. Head. They're brachiosauruses now, but regardless. This was something that I saw when reading the description of the behemoth and the Leviathan. The behemoth is the largest land animal. It is this beast, this monstrous thing in size. It's gargantuan. Its tail is like a cedar. Its bones are tubes of bronze. I mean, it, it, the description of it is this humongous thing. And yet it's very calm. It's very soothing. It lies down with the lotus plants and it's concealed in their shade. And it's, it's just a very subtle, calm, soothing description. Right. And then we go to the Leviathan, which lives in the sea, which is in the Hebrew mindset, the sea, the water is chaos. Right. Well, that's the ancient mindset, uh, all the ancient mythologies. The seas were the place of chaos. So that this creature that lives in the chaos, in the sea, and has fire for breath and and has these shields everywhere. Its belly is pot shards. It's violent beast yeah. that we see. If you even touch it, the, the fight will be something to remember. Yeah. If you live, which you probably won't. But yeah, the, the Leviathan was a ancient creature of mythology. And it's in multiple ancient mythologies. This giant sea monster creature that... In most mythologies, one of the gods of creation would have to go and defeat this monster. And mm -hmm. some of them, he actually created the earth out of the skin of the chaos monster and others. Uh, there's all of these different stories about the great god going out and just destroying this chaos monster and having this epic battle. Well, in Psalms, mm -hmm. there's a... Psalm 74, I believe it is. There's a story of God feeding the people that came out of Egypt and walked through the sea on the meat of the Leviathan mm -hmm. or something along those lines. Yes, uh, Psalm 74. And considering that the story uh, of the exodus from Egypt oh, there it is. is a undoing of creation. Um, the plagues were an undoing of creation. The crossing right. of the Red Sea was a new creation. Yes, yes. That's what I was trying to get at, was that the, the plagues were the undoing of creation. Right. And then they were coming into a new creation. So the idea of this Leviathan coming in that story is, is pretty cool. Right. So uh, Psalm 74, verses beginning in verse 12. For God is my king from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might, and you broke the head of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces, and you made him food for the people living in the wilderness. You did cleave open the fountain and the flood, and you did dry up mighty rivers. So we find Leviathan several places throughout Scripture. And in every case, they're borrowing from the mythologies of the nations around them. Because in every other mythology, as it's describing before, 
one of the great gods had to go and defeat Leviathan. In every single case, except for Psalm 74, where it's playing off of that that idea of this, uh, I believe it's the Babylonian creation myth, God tames the Leviathan. Hmm. He, he's He's so great that he can tame Leviathan. He doesn't have to fight Leviathan. Yeah. He can tame the chaos. He doesn't have to destroy the, the creature of the chaos in order to create order. And throughout the Hebrew scriptures, that is one of the great things about Adonai that sets him apart from so many other gods that are filled all these other pantheons is his power is so great. He just goes out and he tames the, the giant beast. It becomes his puppy. It becomes his friend. And he's the one who feeds it and cares for it and combs its hair and, and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe not combs his hair. But you get the idea. And it's this really cool uh, feature of the Bible where they'll pull in modern media, if you will, uh, ah. from the time. It'd be like us using the Matrix to try and make a point about God, which so many people have done. Sure. But it's borrowing from the mass media, the culture of the world around them in order to make a point about God. We see Paul do that. We see mm, Peter see. does that. We Jude see. does that. Yeshua do that. Yeshua does that. It's all throughout the Bible. And unfortunately, so many times when these things happen, people begin to make doctrines about them. And it's they're borrowing from other cultures to explain a truth about God. And we got to be very careful to recognize when these places come up in Scripture. So that brings us to Leviathan and Job. Is the Leviathan and Job an actual creature? It exists. It sure sounds like a water-type dragon, as you said yeah. before. Breathing fire, giant scales that knit together. You think of smog almost, where you, yeah, there's no chink in his armor. You can't get a sword between them. There's no way to defeat him. There's no way to, uh, sorry, speaks, smog from the from the Hobbit. For those who don't know, he speaks softly to you. Right. Can you make a covenant with him and take him as your slave forever? Right. Yeah. It it, it very much seems like these old dragon myths. Mm-hmm. Were there dragons? I wasn't there. You're right. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> right. So, and neither do I. And that's that's a question that uh, everybody kind of, I guess, has to decide for themselves. Were there dragons? Maybe are there dragons? Maybe I mean, hiding somewhere. Loch Ness. Loch Ness is a thing. <laughs> just, just letting y'all know. So, Wait, uh, but regardless, uh, we do have to be careful about making doctrines about these things because what's being described here, I find more likely that there, he's borrowing a description of the chaos monster from all of these other mythologies that Job would have known, that would have permeated the culture around them. And everybody would have known, you don't tame this thing, you fight this thing. And you don't fight this thing. Only a god can fight this thing. Hmm. Maybe. And I for mean, God to come in and say, see see this thing here? Go ahead, tame it. I made it. It's mine. I, I tend to think that it was real. Maybe. Whether it still is or not. I mean, we don't see any behemoths walking around. That's uh, Unless it's unless an elephant. Unless it's... Unlo- that is definitely not an elephant. A <laughs> uh, 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 rhinoceros? Anyway. Rhin- uh, none of those have tails like cedars. I'm oh, just saying. Dang, you're right. You're right. But unless it's like hiding in a jungle that we haven't been able to penetrate the depths of, uh, that, right. which is potentially possible. And I don't becoming know. more and more rare and scarce. That's true. So, regardless, these creatures, they're fascinating. They grab our attention. I'll tell you what. Junior high boys love these even today. I was at a school doing a presentation, and afterwards, one one of the junior high kids came up to me. He's like, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And, you know, I told him, and he, he's like, mine's Job, because I really like the Leviathan. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yep, you're a junior high boy. Yep. I can tell. But that brings us to chapter 42, which is really where we need to stop and camp for a little bit because there is some really important stuff going on in chapter 42. So it opens with Job answering and basically giving up. What he said he would do, come to me, show me where I'm wrong and I will repent. Job lives up to. Okay, you've showed me where I was wrong. I repent. I'm sorry. You're right. I should not have questioned you. Uh, I should not have questioned what you've done. I, I recognize now that what you're doing is something far beyond my comprehension and you're correct without understanding things too wonderful right yeah and 
he just abases himself and says, you're right. You're so right. Then God turns to the friends. Notice one of the friends isn't present. I did notice that. Elihu is not here. The one that was just so arrogant. The, The one that wasn't really a friend, just maybe some guy who just happened to be passing by and, uh, Got really zealous and then took off, apparently. Now Job's other friends, the ones who were actually close to him, they are here. And they yeah. get put in their place. Yeah, Elihu. And he's and he's specifically speaking to Eliphaz, right. who was basically the leader of the pack. But mm-hmm. yeah, the fact that the Elihu is not here at all makes you wonder... When God says, I will not deal with you according to your folly to the three friends, because maybe he did deal with Elihu uh, in did. his folly. Maybe he did. We don't know. It was just interesting that he's not here. He's not present. And and it just shows that uh, you're going to encounter people who are right, who, who just know it and you're wrong. And they'll come and they'll confront you about how wrong you are. And then they're gone. They have no intentions for relationship, no intentions to be near you. Their whole goal in life is to correct you where you're wrong. And unfortunately, social media is, brings them out of the woodworks. <laughs> well, oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's not the only place for sure. Well, r- well right. But, but it, it, yeah. it, it's made yeah, it apparent. It, We've all encountered those. Yes, absolutely. We call somebody them trolls. Uh, right, but it's just somebody you haven't heard from in a very long time or just you accepted their friend request on a whim six months, a year ago, and never heard from them. And then all of a sudden you post something and suddenly they're there in the comments going, well, actually, <laughs> and correcting you on something or, or getting on to you for some heresy or doing, you know, just trying to tear you down in some way. And then they're gone again. You never hear from them again. Yeah. And, uh, Unfortunately, I've been that guy a couple times, <laughs> but I'm sure most of us have. But yeah, these three friends in two verses, verses uh, seven and eight, they both end with, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as did my servant Job. Yeah. So as far as the friends are concerned, Job was right. They didn't hear his rebuke, it appears. They didn't hear his confession or his repentance. All they know is God's now coming to the defense of Job. And which is, Job is being vindicated right. in their eyes. And then at verse 9, the friends do what God commands. They bring sacrifices and they offer them. This is a Ola ascending offering, so they burn up the entire animal on the altar. And God accepts Job's prayers. It wasn't their prayers that God accepted. God accepted Job's prayers. So one thing I was noticing was... First of all, I guess two things I was noticing was, first of all, God tells them to bring the offering to Job. Yeah. Go to Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. Yeah. Well, I mean, Job's got God hanging over his shoulder right here. Right. And I mean, they don't have a temple at this point. Right. And so in their eyes, Job is the representative of God. Right. And I mean, there's a good chance that at this point, before the, the Levitical priesthood, that Job was also a priest of right. sorts. I mean, as a firstborn in the family, even as a king, he would have been a priest of some sort, offering sacrifices and making prayers and supplications to the gods, his God specifically. So there's a good chance that Job was actually acting in the role of a priest and a mediator between God and his friends in this. And we, we really do catch that picture here that Job is operating in a role of mediator between them. And the other thing that I noticed was the offering. Seven young bulls and seven rams. That brings to mind, and I could be wrong, but I think that that is the offering Balaam sacrifices. Interesting. Let me look that up. That's chap- Numbers uh, chapter 23. Build seven altars for me here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me here. Yes, it is. Standing, sending offering, sending offering. So he has a burnt offering of seven bulls and seven rams on each altar. You are correct. Very good. So that's that's just an interesting little aside that I noticed when I was reading. Right. So the question is, in the ancient world, because Balaam was a a prophet. He was a real prophet uh, who apparently worked for many gods. He knew of... Adonai, 
but he also knew of other gods and mm-hmm. he was for hire. Whoever wanted to hire him could hire him to, you know, do curses or whatever. It's some kind of like maybe a witch doctor of sorts. And so he's hired to curse Israel and he's trying to talk to Adonai and he offers seven bulls and seven rams. Mm-hmm. Is the seven bulls and seven rams something that's specific to Adonai? And it was seen as the way to contact this particular god. If it had been another god, would it have been four bulls and three dogs or pigs or whatever? Or a child. Or a child. or Yeah. It, that's possible. It's, it's interesting, it's though. It's possible that... that- he got his idea to offer seven bulls and seven rams from this well, offering, for well, all right. that we the, know. If Job was an Edomite who lived to the east of the land of Canaan before Israel was even a thing, then, yeah, there's a good chance that Balaam had something handed down to him that this is how you talk to God. Perhaps even this sacrifice here became the, oh, well, if you want to the speak formula. to the God of Job, this is the formula that you do to, to speak to Job's God. Yeah, and that's kind of putting God back in a box, if you will. No, it, it's it's actually widening, widening him out to recognize that the rest of the world knew of him in some way. That's not what I mean. I mean what, what oh, oh, Balaam What did. they would be doing, yes. What they would be doing would be, yeah, formulaically summoning God according to the summoning practices. Right, Calling exactly. his name seven times, dance on your head, and turn around four times so you know, yeah. slash yourself three times and dribble the blood or whatever, you know, yeah. draw this circle on the ground and chalk or, you know, the, the various summoning things that witches and warlocks type do. Yeah. And any good thing can be corrupted. You know, we see that with the serpent on the rod. It yes. Was, it was a good absolutely. thing that was used to heal everybody and it became a... Something they worshipped. Uh, yeah, it became a worship item. Nahushtan, I believe they called it. Yeah. And uh, ended up having to be destroyed by one of the kings of Israel. One thing that really struck out to both Rebecca and I then was in verse, well, in mine is verse 10, 42 verse 10. Yeah, mine is 10 as well. And Adonai turned back the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. And I I saw it in the ESV, and the ESV has it, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. It makes it sound like there's some sort of thing going on here where it's not necessarily if this, then this. It's not a a consequence of Job praying for his friends. Mm-hmm. But it just stuck out to me, and I went and I looked in the Hebrew, and the word that's translated as when in these translations uh, is the word ba'ad, and it means behind, through, roundabout, on behalf of, away from, and about. So, so, on the, behalf of, yeah. is appropriate for this particular... That's the only one that fits in this. So, the Lord restored the f- fortunes of Job when he had prayed on their behalf. It seems as though there is a real type of connection here. There that Job had to forgive to his forgive friends them. before his captivity could be turned back. Because you can't pray, God, please forgive them. And you not forgive them. God's going to know that your heart is corrupt. You're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. Well, there's also the matter of you can't say, God, restore me and turn this back from me while you're still holding on to unforgiveness. Absolutely. And and that brings up some some really important ideas that we just kind of, I just kind of want to go through real quick. I've taught these before. I even have a blurb on a couple of these things. But uh, they're really super central ideas. First off is confession. Confession of sins is important. You have to confess your sins. But confession and repentance are not the same thing. And we see Job confesses. And I've heard confession needs to be specific and exacting. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't see that here. We don't see that in Job's response. And we rarely see that in any um, confession that anybody makes. In uh, Nehemiah's prayer to God for the restoration of the temple. He doesn't say, for we have sinned by doing this, 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 and this. It's just, we have sinned as a people. Forgive us. Yeah. So it's just the, the acknowledgement. Yes, Lord, I have sinned against you and I need your forgiveness. Repentance, on the other hand, is a change of action. It's purposing in your heart to no longer do the thing that you had to confess. In the Hebrew, it's the word shuv or teshuvah, 
is what you're, you'll usually hear it. But really, if you actually look in the Hebrew behind nearly every use of repentance, it's just simply the word shuv. It's, it's turn basic. around. It's a U-turn. Yeah, it's turn around or turn back is the what that word literally means. And that's what repentance is. Repentance is this, I've confessed, I've acknowledged my sin, and now I'm going to turn back away from my sin. Mm-hmm. And that is super important. Uh, but then we've also got this idea of forgiveness that's present here. Job, who has, was in the lowest of the lowest of the darkest places a person can go, and his friends, well-meaning friends, came and through their conversations ended up only making everything worse. Throwing gasoline on the fire. They made everything worse. And God intended to restore Job. From the very beginning, he intended to restore Job. But Job's restoration was being held back by his unforgiveness of his friends. It wasn't until Job prayed and forgave his friends and asked God to forgive his friends for their... For wronging him. For wronging him. For slandering him. For defaming him. Only then did God turn back his captivity. And that is such a profound idea that Job's restoration of fortunes was held in check by his own heart. Yeah. And uh, it reminds me of a parable that is super important. It's Matthew 18, 23 through 35, commonly called the parable of the unforgiving servant. But there's, it's just so profound. I'm going to read it for you real quick. This is from the ESV. It says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Uh, just so you know, 10,000 talents is something like uh, $10 billion. Good luck paying that back. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. It's like uh, 75 bucks. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you. And he refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. In the ancient world, this is called debtor's prison. During the day, they'd be let out and put in stockades in order to beg for the money to pay back the debt. Just so you know how that works. It sounds a little weird, because we don't have any kind of corollary in our modern world. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That is profound. That last verse right there should scare every single one of us who's holding on to any kind of bitterness or heartache or pain from the past. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Hmm. That is hard to do. (sighs) That is a hard pill to swallow. Especially if you're 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 the one who's been wronged. And especially if it hasn't actually stopped yet. Mm, Yeah. If you don't have any expectation of it ever stopping. Right. And you still have to forgive. Right. So what is forgiveness? How does forgiveness work? Because we can say the words, I forgive, all day long, and it really not reach down into our heart. Right. So how do you forgive? There's several steps. The first step is something that we could all use a lot more of, and it's empathy. We have to recognize the person who's harmed us, they're just as evil as we are. We are agents of evil. They are agents of evil. We have hurt others, and we want them to forgive us. 
they have hurt us, and now we need to forgive them. We need to, as Yeshua says in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. Second, forgiveness, it's an act of the will. You have to choose to forgive and follow through on it. It's not a feeling. When you try to forgive someone, you may not feel like you've forgiven them, but you have to choose to forgive them. And anytime the hurt and the pain and the harm that they have done to you comes back in, tries to worm its way back into your mind, remind yourself, I forgave them. And you're going to have to do that an awful lot, especially in the very beginning, especially when it's still somewhat fresh. And then finally, and it may get easier over time, but it might not. Right. And then finally, you have to release any judgment you have against that person. And that's probably the hardest part. And that's the hardest part because we all want to see them get paid back for the harm they've done to us. We want to see vengeance carried out on them, revenge for their crimes. Frankly, God has forgiven us. The vengeance that is due us has been forgiven. That $10 billion that we owe the king has been forgiven. And the judgment of being sold off into slavery has been removed. And so it's our job then to return that favor and release the judgment of wishing for others to be paid back for the harm they've caused us and just let it go. And that can be extremely hard to do. And when the, the memories come back and they're going to come back of the stuff, and not don't only remind yourself that you've forgiven them, you can actually engage in a little trick of psychology. When you look back on that dark time and the hurt and the pain, if you experience the hurt and the pain of that moment, your memory is going to add hurt and pain to the event. And it's just going to continue to be painful and harmful, and it's just going to continue to hurt. I actually was listening to a quick little blurb from uh, Jordan Peterson, the psychologist, recently. And it was about this topic. And he said, if you are constantly having a memory or a hurt feelings over a situation come back and kind of trigger you in the moment, one way to initially change your reactions to it is to sit and think about that event intentionally Mm -hmm. and not let it come and blindside you, Right. but to sit in it and look at it and say, okay, here's what actually happened. Here's all that they did. Here's all that I did. Recognize where you did wrong in your reactions and make a plan for if that were to ever happen again, how would you react to protect yourself and to do the right thing going forward? And then it makes it easier to let it go. Right, because you've learned from it. You come out of it stronger and and wiser and more capable of handling uh, these things. Another thing you can do is when the dark thoughts come alongside this memory of the moment that you were hurt, and instead of adding the pain and more trauma onto the event, you can change your thoughts about it and add something positive, pull something positive from the experience. Something like, I lived, I'm a survivor. Something like, I recovered from the pain. Something like, I grew spiritually from that moment. I grew closer to God in that moment. And if you can reframe the event as a growing experience and as an experience of light, rather than continually dumping the darkness and wallowing on the darkness of that moment, your memory will then begin to think of that moment as a good moment, as a good time in your life. And even if you can't see it in the, I can find something good that I pulled from it, you can say, I can help others who are in it. Right. I can help them out of it because I'm no longer in it. Right. So the end of this book, it's so easy to get distracted by these grand creatures and to get drawn away by them and their descriptions and try to picture them. 
and to completely miss this beautiful little picture of forgiveness here at the end of the book, of this confession, repentance, and forgiveness, and restoration that is such a huge part of this book. These men, they end the book as friends. They end the book back where they began. And yes, they do continue to console Job about the pain that he went through. And he never forgets what he lost. What he gets with this new stuff, it doesn't replace it. It doesn't bring back the the children that he lost. But it does help him to move past it in some ways. To be able to live life again with a new joy and a newfound appreciation for the good things that do surround him. And that is where grief and trauma and pain ends is when you can get to that point of forgiveness of those who have hurt you, whether it be God or your friends around you, whether it be something that happened in the trauma or something that happened after it, as people were trying to help you practicing that forgiveness, practicing that repentance for the areas where you failed, practicing that restoration of relationship with people who did care for you and who did try to help you in those moments of pain, even though they were completely inept in it. Restoration and forgiveness are a huge part of the recovery process from things like grief and trauma and pain. And got to get to those points before you can truly heal. And there's also hope for those like us who have been the friends. Right. Who can say truly, I was wrong. Let me repent. And there's hope that there can be restoration. There can be renewed friendship. Even when you have hurt someone. Right. And so with that rebuke, repentance, restoration, forgiveness, these are all parts of the path of life. And as we go through life, we need to seek them out so that we can find true life in all ways. So seek life. In all that you do. Shalom. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Darish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.